You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. I'm Annika Hurd from Drake University, and here is our first story. 3% school funding increase making its way to Reynolds. It would be the second largest per pupil increase since 2011. Iowa's K-12 public schools will get a 3% increase in per-pupil state funding for the next school year under proposals from the Republican majorities in the House and Senate, larger than the increase sought by the governor, but smaller than what the Democrats wanted. The Iowa Senate approved the funding proposal Thursday. The House will consider the proposal next week. Republicans there are also supporting a 3% increase. Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed budget, published in January, included a 2.5% increase in per-pupil K-12 public school funding. Republican legislative leaders said they have not discussed the increased funding level with Reynolds, and her office did not respond to a request for comment Thursday. The proposed legislation allocates $3.7 billion in general funding to Iowa's 327 K-12 public school districts, an increase of nearly $124 million over the current year, according to a legislative analysis by the state's nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency. Iowa's total state general fund budget for the current year is roughly $8.2 billion. Quote, I'll start with the word conservative, with no apology. We have a conservative budgeting policy, and people in increasing numbers sent us back to the Iowa House and Senate, said Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Oskaloosa who chairs the Senate Education Committee. Quote, this reflects our conservatism. This is sustainable. Republican Pat Grassley, the House Speaker from New Hartford, said House Republicans will also support a 3% public school funding increase. Quote, we know that's something that works in the budget, Grassley told reporters Thursday. We thought that was a very, very solid number to be able to show support for our public school systems. Earlier this session, State House Republicans approved a new program that, at full implementation in four years, will each year make roughly $7,600 in state-funded private school aid available for any K-12 student in Iowa. The program is projected to cost the state $345 million annually. Democrats in the Senate this week proposed a public school funding increase of roughly 6% which would amount to an additional $267 million. Democrats said that equals what Republicans have proposed for the new private school financial aid program this year, plus a reduction in corporate income taxes approved last year. Democrats pitched their proposal as an amendment to the Republicans' bill. It was defeated mostly along party lines, with Republican Senator Charlie McClintock of Alvernet voting with the Democrats. Quote, shortchanging Iowa's public schools is shortchanging the future of Iowa's kids. That's the inescapable truth, said Senator Herman Kornbach of Ames, the top Democrat on the Senate Education Committee and a former Iowa State University professor. Quote, we're proposing a different set of priorities. Our priorities and our obligations are to the public students of Iowa. Since Republicans regained At least partial control of the state lawmaking process in 2011, state general funding for public K-12 schools has increased by an average of 1.9% annually, 
Over the previous 38 years, under the current state school funding formula, that funding increased by an average of 5% annually, according to the legislative agency's data. The 3% increase proposed by legislative Republicans would be the second largest increase since 2011, trailing only the 4% increase implemented for the 2014-2015 school year, according to the data. Democrats argue the lower rates of annual funding increases over the past decade plus have not kept up with inflation, creating fiscal challenges for school districts. In addition to their proposed 6% increase in per-pupil funding, Democrats also pitched amendments that would fund all-day four-year-old preschool in districts, funding boosts for special education programs and per-pupil funding for low-income students. All were defeated on party-line votes. Similarly, the final vote on Senate File 192 was a party-line vote, 34 to 15, with Democrats opposing and Republicans supporting. On to our next story. Bill would pair frequency of concussion training for coaches. Iowa coaches would be required to receive training once every five years instead of annually on how to identify and respond to student-athlete with a suspected concussion under a bill advanced Wednesday by a House Education Subcommittee. Current rules adopted by the State Board of Educational Examiners require annual concussion training or renewal of a K-12 coaching license. Coaching in Iowa, either paid or volunteer, requires a valid authorization or endorsement. The bill would change that to every five years to coincide with renewal of their coaching authorization from the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners. Emily Piper, a lobbyist for the Iowa Association of School Boards, which is registered in favor of the bill, said that the yearly training is repetitive and unnecessary, and noted that required recertification for cardiopulmonary resuscitation is done every two years. Quote, we believe that having the training once every five years upon their authorization for renewal is sufficient, Piper told the subcommittee. Our goal on all trainings is to take a look at how we can reduce the frequency of them, but is but still provide the training that is necessary for the safety of the students and the athletes. Vic Miller, president of the Iowa Athletic Trainer Society, contends it's important for coaches, many of whom lack access to athletic trainers on a regular basis, to have a yearly refresher on to, to protect the health and welfare of the student. Quote, so they are the sole people that are responsible for identifying possible concussions for the student athletes. Miller of Ankeny told subcommittee members, and we feel that just the simple annual training should stay that way so that these coaches can make the best decisions for the student athletes. Miller said such training is required on an annual basis at, pre at various collegiate and professional levels as well, so let's keep these coaches informed, Miller said. I always think more education is always, always a good thing. Leslie Carpenter of Iowa Mental Health Advocacy echoed Miller. Carpenter is a required physical therapist and parent of a student athlete, quote, who's seen very serious concussions playing volleyball in high school. Far too often, coaches have no idea the dangers and the limitations that can happen as a result of the concussion, Carpenter said, and there's far too little protection of the student athletes. The Brain Injury Alliance is registered against the bill, However, a lobbyist for the group twice told lawmakers during the hearing that it supported the proposal. We are supportive of this legislation as the practice of concussion identification, management, 
and return to play protocol is ever evolving, said the lobbyist Chelsea Hoynes. In addition, concussions are mild brain injuries, yet critical, critically have impacts on diverse medical, cognitive, and educational success. Subcommittee member Representative Tracy Earlhart, a Democrat of Cedar Rapids, questioned whether concussion training would become more extensive. Republican Tom Moore, Rep Representative Tom Moore, a Republican from Griswold, chair of the subcommittee, said he did not foresee such a need. It isn't one of those things that just goes away, said Moore, a retired teacher and football coach. You don't forget about your concussion protocols and the health and welfare of your athletes. Moore, however, said state officials need to access the, quote, efficacy of the training and how valuable it is and how much of that is easily retained by the person taking the training. We need to look at when it's actually needed as opposed to just checking the box and getting it done, Moore said. Doug Sturick, a lobbyist representing the Trainer Society, said he worries the bill places expediency above that of advice from medical experts. I think that erring on the side of actually going through every year and being ready to spot these things is not such a bad direction to go to, Sturick said. I think that we should be following what healthcare providers are saying and looking in this and not educators. Moore said he has mixed feelings on the bill, but I also don't believe our coaching staffs are ill-equipped to handle these things. Speaking from my own experience, there isn't a coach out there that is going to jeopardize the health of their student, Moore said. These coaches are taking care of their kids. Even though the training may be online and simple to get, I don't see it as being a matter of expediency. I see it being a matter of, I see it as a matter of being unnecessary annually to be done. At the same time, Moore said he's unsure whether five years is the right time frame. The subcommittee advanced the bill to the full House Education Committee, with Earlhart declining to sign off on the bill. On to our next story. Union Pacific Museum to celebrate Lincoln's birthday and Valentine's Day. The Union Pacific Railroad Museum, located 200 Pearl Street in Council Bluffs, will celebrate President Abraham Lincoln's birthday and Valentine's Day with a special family fun day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday, February 11th. President's Day, observed on the third Monday in February in Iowa, celebrates the birth of Abraham Lincoln on February 2nd. On February, I'm so sorry, okay. President's Day, observed on the third Monday in February in Iowa, celebrates the birth of Abraham Lincoln on February 12, 1809 in Hodgenville, Kentucky, and George Washington's birthday on February 22, 1732 in Westmoreland County, Virginia. We're showing Lincoln some love, said Patricia LeBounty, curator of the museum. Lincoln had such a special history with Council Bluffs and the railroad. We're unique among communities in the country that in that respect, so we've got a lot to celebrate. Lincoln founded the Union Pacific Railroad when he signed the Pacific Railway Act on July 1, 1862, and launched the development of the Transcontinental Railroad. He designed Council Bluffs as the eastern terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad and engaged General Grenville Dodge of Council Bluffs to map out the railroad's route to the west coast. The Union Pacific Railroad Museum houses the Lincoln Collection, which features artifacts from Lincoln's rail car and funeral. Visitors are invited to make Valentine's Day themed crafts they can take home to celebrate the holiday just three days later. 
Guests can challenge themselves with a self-guided Lincoln trivia scavenger hunt that will likely expand their knowledge about Lincoln, regardless of their age. Instructions for the hunt, which is all indoors, and prizes will be available at the front desk on the lower level. All activities are free of charge and everyone is welcome. Also on February 11th, the museum will launch a new History Express tour that will be offered from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. every Saturday. The guided tour, which begins in the front of the business car on the first floor, offers an overview of more than 150 years of railroad history. The tour is free and registration is not required. This is just another way to experience the information we have in the building, Lebounty said. It includes the entire museum, both floors, and all three galleries. The Union Pacific Railroad Museum will hold a community listening session on February 25th to gather public input ahead of its strategic planning process, she said. The museum is open Thursday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Admissions are free, but donations are welcome. Let's go on to our next story. All suspects in custody in January robbery and murder case in custody. All seven suspects wanted in connection with the robbery turned murder that took place on January 8th in Council Bluffs are now in custody, according to an update from the Council Bluffs Police Department. The Daily Nonpareil reported Wednesday that three people had been arrested and four more were wanted in connection to the crime. Since that report, Angelina Michelson, 20, turned herself into authorities on Wednesday night. On Thursday morning, both Trevor Carmen, 19, Dontre Hudson, 20, were taken into custody by the Southwest Iowa Fugitive Task Force at a location in Omaha. Michelson is being held at the Pottawatomie County Jail, while Carmen and Hudson were transported to Douglas County Corrections and are awaiting extradition back to Council Bluffs. Council Bluffs police officers were dispatched at 5.15 p.m. January 8th to 209 South 4th Street on a report of shots fired, according to a press release from the CDPD. Shortly after arriving, officers found the victim, Tucker Dobbinstein, 19, of Fremont, Nebraska, lying on the floor in apartment number six with a gunshot wound to the chest. The Shreveport, Louisiana Police Department has Devin Atkins, 30, in custody. Police have confirmed Thursday afternoon. According to a witness, several people ran from the building wearing rubber gloves and masks following the shots. At that time, the Criminal Investigation Division and Forensics Team were called to investigate the scene. After an exhaustive investigation, detectives found that seven suspects had worked together to plan and commit a robbery of the victim as he was delivering drugs to them, the press release stated. Four of the suspects met the victim in the apartment, and during the armed robbery, shots were fired, killing the victim. These suspects then left the apartment and jumped into a waiting vehicle, occupied by two other suspects. The apartment tenant was not present during the incident, but it is alleged that she had prior knowledge of the planned robbery. Detectives applied for and executed several search warrants of the apartments, phones, social media, and other electronic devices to gather evidence related to the case. With the information gathered, it was determined that all seven suspects would be charged with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery for their involvement in the incident. By Wednesday, police had apprehended Kayshawn Hoots Mayfield, 20, Trayvon Thomas, 20, and Triana Hudson, 20. All suspects are from Council Bluffs and will be charged with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery.
Now for our next story. Potawatomi Conservation Accepting Applications for Summer Internships and Jobs. If you love the great outdoors and need some college credit this summer or just want a summer job, Potawatomi Conservation is now accepting applications for paid internships and park aids. The environmental education intern, intern will work primarily at Hitchcock Nature Center and will assist the education coordinator and county naturalists with developing programming for groups and individuals, including the county's summer camps, but also schools, special events, and the general public. The environmental education intern will also create content for social media, blogs, and newsletters, and staff the reception desk at the Nature Center. Applicants must be 18 years of age or older, have a valid driver's license, and be attending or planning to attend college in the conservation or education field. In addition to an environmental education intern, Conservation is also looking for a full-time park ranger interns at the county's five parks, Arrowhead, Bontebend, and Old Town, and Hitchcock Nature Center and Narrows Park River. The ranger internships will require a considerable amount of physical activity, including walking, standing, kneeling, crouching, reaching, stooping, and climbing, according to the application website. Duties include, but are not limited to the supervision of seasonal staff and volunteers, public safety, public relations, park maintenance, and environmental education. Park ranger internships applicants must have a valid driver's license and good driving record and not have been convicted in, sorry, not have been convicted of a felony in the past two years. CPR and basic first aid certification are also preferred. Park ranger internships are open to individuals 18 years of age or older and attending or planning to attend college in the conservation or natural resource field. Seasonal park aides will assist the park ranger which, with management of their assigned park, including maintenance and public relations. Next up is the face of the day. Lori Shields may be starting a new career chapter over in Omaha, but she's still very invested in her home of Council Bluffs. Shields grew up in West Point, Nebraska, a small town between Omaha and Norfolk. She attended Central Catholic High School and graduated in 1993. Following high school, Shields went to the University of Nebraska at Kearney to study business administration and marketing. She earned her bachelor's degree and graduated in 1997. After college, Shields moved to Omaha and began a detailed and evolving career in marketing. She started out at the Omaha World Herald, working in retail advertising sales. She later went on to work for General Growth Properties, a commercial real estate company that was one of the country's biggest commercial operators. She worked as a marketing assistant at the West Roads Mall and then as a marketing director at Mall of the Bluffs. And lastly, the marketing coordinator over at Oakview Mall. She then became group marketing coordinator and oversaw all three malls. She then did marketing or public relations for the Durham Museum, Mutual of Omaha, and Padima Corporate Office. As Shields' job was threatened by layoffs at Padima, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. As Shields' job was threatened by layoffs at Pamita, she found an opening within the Council Bluffs area Chamber of Commerce, where she's been for the past 14 and a half years. She started out using her marketing background but over time, Shields saw her role within the chamber evolve. 
She is now Vice President of Communications and Leadership Development. She was a member of the 24th class of Leadership Council Bluffs, which she had been heading and developing for the program for the past 10 years or so. The program is in its 35th class right now. She also runs the Chamber's Youth Leadership Program, which is on its 17th year. After a storied tenure working in marketing, leadership, and workforce and economic development, Shields is moving to a new employment opportunity. She'll soon be serving as Senior Manager of Communication and Public Relations at Tenasca, an energy company based in Omaha. Her last day with the Chamber will be February 9th, which will also be the date of a youth leadership trip to City Hall. Shields said it's been an honor developing the Chamber leadership programs over the years. She said every year, the new class asks if they're the best she's ever seen, and she tells them yes. Her reasoning is that in order to move forward and progress, you have to keep getting better. You can't be complacent. She was told by her predecessor to make the program hers and to make it better, and she hopes the next person takes the role and does the same thing. She's proud of seeing different generations of professionals and community leaders making an impact in Council Bluffs. Shields has lived in Council Bluffs since 2004. Her husband, Dave, is a captain with the Council Bluffs Fire Department, and they've been married since 2007. They have a 13-year-old son, Mason, who is a 7th grader at Kern Middle School, and their daughter, Jasmine, 14, is a freshman at Abraham Lincoln High School. Shields also continues to serve on the Potawatomi Conservation Foundation Board and is a lifetime member of the Leadership Council Bluffs Alumni Association. So, although Shields is taking her career across the river, she's still dedicated to her community in Council Bluffs. Let's move on to our next story from the Lifestyles section. Christian Music Tour Winter Jam is coming to Council Bluffs. Winter Jam Tour, Christian Music's biggest tour hosted by New Song, will be at the Mid-America Center on Thursday, February 16th. The tour is produced by Premier Production and was founded over 20 years ago. Winter Jam will feature headliners We the Kingdom and Jeremy Camp. We are so incredibly excited to announce that we are going to be part of Winter Jam 2023, We the Kingdom said in a press release. Several of us grew up going to Winter Jam. What a powerful time to unity and let the love of and hope of God be poured in the room over every heart each night. Camp is known for his songs I Still Believe and I Walk by Faith and many more. Others on the lineup include Anthony Mano, Disciple, Austin French, New Song, and Ann Wilson, who is the first-time Dove Award-winning New Artist of the Year, according to a press release. Winter Jam has consistently ranked in Polestar's top tours and has taken number one spot for several years, the release said. Artists Thrive Worship, Sean B., and Renee will play at the pre-jam, where Zane Black will be speaking. The tour has stayed true to its original mission of low donation at the door to allow as many people as possible to attend, the release said. Admission is $15 at the door, and tickets do not need to be purchased in advance. Jam donation doors open at 5 p.m., general admission doors open at 6 p.m., and the show starts at 7 p.m. The Mid-America Center is located at 1 Arena Way. For more information, visit jamtour.com. No capitals in that is just jamtour.com. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, 
for Friday, February 3rd, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm Annika Hurd from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please feel free to call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Let's now move to the obituary section. Thomas Dwayne Christensen. Thomas Dwayne Christensen, aged 81, passed away on Wednesday, January 25th in Surprise, Arizona, surrounded by family. Tom was born on January 15, 1942, in Alta, Iowa, to Carl and Joy Christensen. He graduated from Alta High School in 1960 and went on to get his Bachelor of Arts in Education from Buena Vista University. He later went on to earn his Master's of Science in Counseling from University of Nebraska at Omaha. Tom spent 10 years teaching French and serving as a counsel, counselor for Council Bluffs Public Schools before going into insurance sales. During his career, Tom was the recipient of many awards. He was a 15-year winner of the National Quality Award through the American Mutual Life and qualified for the Million Dollar Roundtable numerous times in his 45 years career in insurance. Tom's greatest career accomplishment was owning and operating Christensen Insurance Incorporated with his wife, Mary E. Christensen, until 2002. Christensen Insurance Incorporated was sold to Silverstone Group in 2002, where Tom continued his career until his retirement in 2019. Tom was proud of his career, but he found true joy in being a grandfather and spent as much time as he could with his grandchildren. Tom and Mary have enjoyed their past several years of retirement in sunny Surprise, Arizona. Tom is preceded in death by both of his parents and his stepson, Kent Johnson. Tom is survived by the love of his life, Mary Christensen of Surprise, Arizona, brother Robert Christensen of Houston, Texas, son Kenneth Christensen of New York, son Dwayne Christensen of Elizabethtown, Kentucky, stepson Clay Johnson of Tipton, Iowa, many grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. Visitation with the family, Sunday, 3 to 6 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service, Monday, 11 a.m. at the funeral home. Internment, Walnut Hill Cemetery, with a lunch following at the Walnut Hill Reception Center, 1350 East Pierce Street. Memorials are suggested to the Boy Scouts of America. Larry G. Gittens, Sr., Larry G. Gittins Sr., age 76, of Council Bluffs, passed away January 25, 2023, at Jenny Edmondson Hospital. Larry was born March 9, 1946, in Council Bluffs, to Glenn and Betty L. Gittins. He attended Thomas Jefferson High School and proudly served his country in the U.S. Army. Larry was a clerk for the U.S. Postal Service in Omaha, Nebraska, for 29 years, retiring in 2020. In 2010, he also sold insurance. Larry married Mary Holland Mitchum on May 24, 2003. He was a member of St. John Lutheran Church. Larry was preceded in death by his son, Blake Steenbach, mother and stepfather, Betty Ruschenberg, father, Glenn Gittens, 
Larry is survived by his wife of 19 years, Mary Gittens of Council Bluffs, son Lynn Gittens of Shenandoah, Iowa, daughter Lynette Boss of Walker, Iowa, and her children Dalton and Nathan Breck Kemmer, stepdaughters Lisa Faber of Millard, Nebraska, and their children Trent Brackle and Lily Faber, Sandy Mitchum of Austin, Texas, and her children Jadella and Mika Mixum, Gwendolyn Meredith, brother-in-law and sister-in-law Ryman Holland of Southfield, Michigan. Visitation with the family, Sunday, February 5th, 2023, from 3 to 5 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service, Monday, February 6th, 2023, 11 a.m. at St. John Lutheran Church. Internment with military rites tendered by the Canesville Honor Guard and Memorial Park Cemetery. A lunch will follow in the Faith and Life Center at St. John Lutheran Church. The family will direct memorial contributions. Let's now move on to our next section, sports. Day one area results at the first ever IGHSAW sanctioned state tournament. In the first IGHSAW sanctioned girls wrestling state championships, plenty of wrestlers represented the Council Bluffs area. Beginning with the Abraham Lincoln Thomas Jefferson Co-op, known as the Squirrels, four athletes took part in the opening day tournament on Thursday. Cassidy Fiala, 155-27-9, won her first match with a pin, 3 minutes and 42 in, but she was pinned in round two. She split her next two, pinning Dana Swidensky from Lewis Central in consolation round two. Each of the other four Squirrels lost their first, both Daniela Salinas, 114-7, and Sierra Wieland, 125-27-16, responded with decision wins, 11-5 and 9-5. Both lost their third match, however. Jules Thomas, 145-20-17, lost both of her matches. Lewis Central had an impressive eight wrestlers representing the Titans, and each of Maya Humelsic, 105-47-2, Sophie Barnes, 125-44-2, and Mari Manns, 140-43-2, won their matches. Both Humelisek and Manns won their first pins in the round, while Barnes pinned her first opponent midway through the third round and won 7-0 in her second match. Humelisek lost 6-1 in the quarterfinals to Layla Phillips from Mason City, but Barnes was able to pin Ames's Alexis Winkie in the quarters and Manns did the same against Earl Harms' Haley Glade. Both Barnes and Manns advanced to Friday's semifinals. Ava McNeil, 100, 39-5, Sierra Elderbaum, 110, 35-8, and S.B. Alsman, 145, 42-3, each won their first match, but fell in second. McNeil responded with pins in the second and third consolation round, and Almondson, won four and three with a pin in the consolation round. Susan Elderbaum, 120, 17 and 11, and Dana Swidensky, 28 and 11, both responded from first round losses with wins. Both Elderbaum sisters were pinned on their third matches on Thursday. From AHSTW, Isabella Canada, 235, 17-3, represented the Vikings with a pair of decision wins to get her state tournament started well, but lost 5-2 in the quarterfinals. Glenwood's Maya Rivis, 
16 and 12, and Emily Lundvall, 120, 25 and 7, both won their first matches, but were both pinned in the third minute of their second matches. Lindvall responded with a pin 3 minutes and 33 seconds into her third match, but Revis was pinned early in the second round, as was Ludvall in consolation round 3. Laura-Lise Flint-Spencer, 130, 23 and 15, a late addition after the fourth place finisher at regionals was unable to compete, was pinned in her two matches. Molly Allen, 115, 28 and 0, from Riverside, continued her undefeated run with a pair of pins to open the state tournament. The other two Bulldogs, Carly Henderson, 120, 28 and 6, and Kia Meek, 170, 23 and 23, both split their first two matches. Henderson came back with a 4-2 decision win in the second consolation round. The trainer Cardinals had four wrestlers, Emma Miller, 105, 21-12, Adeline Minahan, 115, 24-12, Andin White, 125, 29-9, and Emerson Gregg, 130, 121-26, who all split their first two matches. Miller, Minahan, and White each lost their third match on Thursday, while Greg recorded her second straight win with a 4-2 decision. Finally, Underwood's Kaylin pinned two opponents, but was also pinned as the Eagles' lone state tournament rep. On to our next story. Riley says Kareem had only greatness. Pat Riley remembers just about every detail surrounding the events of December 29, 1961, it was a cold night in Schenectady, New York. A little snowy, the roads a little icy. And when the bus carrying the opposing team from New York City arrived, all of Riley's Linton High teammates peered out the window. They saw a giant. Long before Riley and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were winning NBA championships together as a coach and player with the Showtime-era Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s, they were opponents. Riley and Linton beat Power Memorial and Lou Alcindor. Abdul-Jabbar's name before converting to Islam, 74-68 to 68 that night. Abdul-Jabbar, then a 6'10 freshman, was held to 8 points because he spent virtually the entire game in foul trouble. He has told Riley several times over the years that Linton won because Riley's father, a lifelong baseball man, had his umpiring friends refereeing the game, which we did, Riley acknowledges. Riley knew it then and came to appreciate it even more years later, there were only a few ways to stop the player who would eventually spend nearly four decades as the most prolific scorer in NBA history. Abdul-Jabbar is on the verge of being passed by the Lakers' LeBron James, the 38-year-old who was nearly nine months from being born when the unforgettable center made one of his signature skyhooks on April 5, 1984 to overtake Wilt Chamberlain and become the league's scoring leader. Kareem was a guy that never had any potential. He just had greatness, said Riley, now the president of the Miami Heat, and one of the few who has worked with both Abdul-Jabbar and James. You could see that. When you can bypass potential and you move right to greatness as a high school player and then college and then the pros, there are very few like him. There's a handful, two handfuls at the most. James is one of them, going from high school straight to the NBA. Now in his 20th season, he is now just 89 points away from passing Abdul-Jabbar's record. The Lakers play Thursday in Indiana, then Saturday in New Orleans. The most realistic target for the record breaker is Tuesday in Los Angeles, 
against Oklahoma City, or perhaps symbolically, next Thursday in LA, when the Lakers play host to the Milwaukee Bucks, the team that Abdul-Jabbar started his NBA career with. This past October, Abdul-Jabbar, on his Substack page where he discusses and offers opinion on a variety of topics, often nothing to do with sports, that when James passed Kobe Bryant for number three on the all-time scoring list in 2020, he knew it was just a matter of time before he passed me too. Abdul-Jabbar wrote, Every time a record is broken, all people are elevated. When I broke Wilt Chamberlain's scoring record in 1984, the year LeBron was born, it bothered Wilt, who'd had a bit of a one-sided rivalry with me since I'd started doing so well in the NBA, he added. I don't feel that way towards LeBron. Not only will I celebrate his accomplishment, I will sing his praises unequivocally. The relationship between Abdul-Jabbar and James seems complicated. Abdul-Jabbar was outside the Cleveland locker room during the 2016 Eastern Conference Finals as James was jogging by. The two embraced and shared a few kind words, prompting James to discuss the respect he has for Abdul-Jabbar and others who paved the way in his post-game remarks. Abdul-Jabbar has also lauded James as a community leader and athlete, but he criticized James for not doing more with his platform to encourage people to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And earlier this season, James said he has no relationship with Abdul-Jabbar. There are ties that bind them, though. Both are champions. Both have worked to promote social justice and spoken out against racial inequality. Abdul-Jabbar played 20 years in the NBA. James is in year 20. Abdul-Jabbar set the record while playing for the Lakers. James will do the same. And if nothing else, James's pursuit of the record may have exposed a generation or two that never saw Abdul-Jabbar play to how great he was. We have to acknowledge those who've come before us, those who've paved the way. Lakers coach Darvin Ham said, You think of all those points Kareem scored, and he had, and what about one three-pointer? You think about all of that, and these kids get to learn about a different era. It's high, high-level education in the game of basketball, particularly NBA basketball. When Abdul-Jabbar broke the record, Riley said Magic Johnson, then the Lakers point guard, made sure he was the one who got to assist on the play. Johnson nearly put himself back into the game against Utah in Las Vegas that night when Abdul-Jabbar was two points away. Years later, when the Lakers from those championships teams of that era gathered in Hawaii for last summer for a reunion, Abdul-Jabbar was a day late because of personal matters. The Lakers in 2022 celebrated his arrival the same way they did the record setter in 1984. He felt special because he was special, because he is special, Riley said, of the man who once stood shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder alongside and embattled Muhammad Ali during the boxing league's champs legal troubles in the late 1960s, and counted Bill Russell, another basketball giant and social change champion, as a mentor. He was treated as the patriarch of all the players. It was a great week for him. He was engaged, came to everything we did, gave us spontaneous talks. And he's a shy guy, but he felt very comfortable in this group. Riley coached Abdul-Jabbar in Los Angeles and later lured James to Miami for a four-year run starting in 2010. He sees in James what he saw in Alcindor when that bus pulled into Schenectady in 1961. Next, Chief spanked on rookie returns to reach the Super Bowl again. Andy Reid remembers talking to the Kansas City Chiefs at some point last year, back when veterans were getting to know rookies and the season still seemed so far off. He brought up the San Francisco 49ers under Bill Walsh. 
It was 1981, and the 49ers had drafted a quartet of defensive backs that they expected to contribute right away. They did so much more so. Ronnie Lott went on to start all 16 games, beginning a Hall of Fame career and becoming one of the finest safeties to play the game. Eric Wright and Carlton Williams, both who both went on to play in Pro Bowls, started alongside Lott every week, and Lynn Thomas appeared in 15 games. Together, that group carefully selected by Walsh helped the 49ers win their first conference championship before beating the Bengals for their first Super Bowl title. It seems like a long time ago that I mentioned this to our guys, Reed said last week. The reason for bringing it up? Chiefs general manager Brett Veach also drafted four defensive backs last year. And much like the 49ers, the, Chief the Chiefs banked on their rookie quartet to get back to the Super Bowl after a one-year absence. I mean, here we sit, Reed said with a smile. First round pick Trent McDuffie, who dealt with hamstring injuries sustained in their opener, emerged as a lockdown cornerback. Jalen Watson had a 99-yard pick six that helped the Chiefs beat the Chargers early in the season and has since picked off two more passes in the playoffs. Josh Williams also intercepted Bengals quarterback Joe, Bur Joe Burrow in the AFC title game, catching the deep throw in the closing minutes after rookie safety Brian Cook had batted it into the air. The pressure of the four on the four last Saturday went soaring on the game's fourth play, when one of the few veterans in the secondary, Legereus Sneed, was sidelined by a concussion. Yet, they were undaunted. Obviously, there was a concern, Reed said, when asked about his rookies, but playing so much so soon. But there was an optimism that it can be done. Then the kids just their work ethic. They showed us in this training camp. They showed it all the way through the season. If they got beat, they came back and fought back. Indeed, all four of them took regular season lumps, but you wouldn't know it by the playoffs. Did they exceed even Beach's expectations? I think so, he replied. Maybe it was a necessity because we had a lot of turnover. Again, every time we approach an offseason, whether it be a free agent signing or a draft pick, we have a full confidence in our staff's ability to bring talented players in and our coaches to get the most of them. I think you saw early on, you guys were at the OTAs and the training camps. I think it was pretty clear early on that this would be a special group. On to our next story. An unprecedented career stuffed with highlights. Nobody drove Tom Brady harder than the record-setting quarterback himself. Even if his 23rd and final season after a brief retirement didn't end with him lifting yet another Lombardi trophy. He leaves the NFL with more wins, yards passing, and touchdowns than any other quarterback. He even set a pair of single-season passing records at the age of 45. And yes, nobody has more Super Bowl rings than Brady with seven. Brady competed so hard that he pulled his teammates along with him. Tampa Bay center Ryan Jensen, the nine-year pro who hurt his left knee on the second day of training camp, came off injured reserve to snap Brady in the Buccaneers' wild-card loss to Dallas, the quarterback's final game. Thanks for pushing me every day this season, mentally and physically, to get back on the field, Jensen wrote on social media Wednesday. I'm glad I was able to take the field with you one last time. Enjoy retirement. Don't dog me too much in the booth. Love you, man. Brady did more than his part to fill the video vaults at the NFL Films. Here are just a few of his greatest moments. Final, final season. Brady didn't finish his career with a winning record in his last season. He did, however, make his mark. 
he set a pair of NFL single-season records, completing 490 passes on 733 attempts and wound up ranking third in the NFL with 4,694 yards passing. And yes, he led the Bucks to second straight NFC South title, even with a losing record. Super Bowl comeback. Of course, the first Super Bowl decided in overtime featured Brady, leading one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. Trailing Atlanta 28-3 in the third quarter, Brady threw two touchdowns and then drove Patriots 91 yards by completing six passes to, tie up the, to set up the tying score inside the final minute. Once New England won the coin toss, Brady completed his first five passes as the Patriots won 34-28 for their fifth Super Bowl on February 5th, 2017. Overtime drive for Super Bowl. Already the oldest quarterback to play in a Super Bowl, Brady outdueled the NFL's young MVP and Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City on January 20th, 2019, with another Super Bowl berth on the line. Brady answered each big drive by Mahomes, especially in a thrilling fourth quarter, which led which the lead was swapped four times. Once the Chiefs forced overtime, Brady took over after the Patriots won the coin toss. He converted on a trio of third and tens with a pair of passes to Julian Edelman and a third to Rob Gronkowski to set up the clinching touchdown run by Rex Burkhead. Seventh ring. Even coming close to Brady's record in Super Bowls will be very challenging after he won his number seven in his first season with Tampa Bay. He threw two touchdowns to, to Gronkowski and a third to Antonio Brown, as the Bucks routed Mahomes and the Chiefs 31 to 9. And yes, Brady helped the Bucks become the first franchise to ever win the Super Bowl on its home field. Give him six. Brady helped the Patriots put an end to Tebow Mania in spectacular fashion. Brady tied a playoff record set first by Daryl Lamonkia and then matched by Steve Young by throwing six touchdown passes in a divisional game against Tim Tebow and the Denver Broncos on January 4, 2012. He threw the first within the first two minutes to Wes Welker and wound up with all six in the Patriots' first nine drives. Brady threw three passes to Gronkowski, and two of Brady's six touchdowns came in the final two minutes of the first half. Brady finished with 363 yards passing in the Patriots' 45-10 victory. Hey Peyton, Brady dominated his rivalry with five-time NFL MVP Peyton Manning winning 11 of their 17 meetings and their first playoff showdown. With the Patriots and the Colts facing off in the AFC Championship game on Brady's home turf on January 18, 2004, Brady set the tone from the start. He capped an opening drive with a touchdown pass to David Givens and had the Patriots up 15-0 at halftime on the way to a 24-14 victory in another Super Bowl berth. Tuck Rule Brady gives a preview of postseason success to come on January 19, 2002 in his only playoff game at Old Foxborough Stadium with a big assist from a replay review. Trailing the Oakland Raiders 13-10 with a minute and 50 left, former Michigan teammate Charles Woodson knocked the ball out of Brady's hand. The Raiders recovered the fumble and celebrated only to have the call reversed on a replay by referee Walt Coleman because the little-known tuck rule. The rule was later eliminated. Brady found David Patton on the play on the next play for a 13-yard pass, setting up Adam Vinatieri's tying field goal. 
In overtime, Brady completed eight straight passes to position Vinatieri to for the winning field goal that launched Brady and the Patriots on their way to their first Super Bowl title. Tickets voided, Illinois fans' plans crushed by Iowa. The plans of an Illinois basketball student support group to attend Saturday's Iowa-Illinois basketball game at Carver, at Carver Hawkeye Arena have been crushed by Iowa Athletic Department officials. Members of the Orange Crush, a long-standing student organization that supports fighting Illinois basketball and raises money for the charitable causes, were informed by Iowa Wednesday that 200 tickets the group had purchased for the 1.30 p.m. border battle had been invalidated. In a statement released from the Iowa Basketball Program's Twitter account on Wednesday night, Iowa officials indicated that the tickets were invalidated when the athletics department became aware that the disconnected that a discounted group ticket order for the game had not actually been purchased by the organization that the purchaser indicated was buying the tickets. The statement said the order was originally made on behalf of an Illinois chapter of the Boys and Girls Club. In following up with that organization, it became clear that this was not factual. When contacting the individual who made the original ticket order, they admitted to falsely ordering the tickets under a nonprofit organization, Iowa officials said. The Iowa Athletics then refunded the original ticket order to the individual who ordered the tickets and has donated the 200 tickets to the Boys and Girls Club of Cedar Rapids. We look forward to welcoming these kids to a sold-out Carver-Hawkeye Arena this Saturday, statement concluded. The situation became public after leadership of the Orange Crush issued a statement of their own earlier Wednesday evening announcing the cancellation of the trip. The group which had been in existence for more than a quarter of a century, has for the past two decades made trips from one Fighting Illinois road game per season. Individuals who are selected to make the trip are those who raise the most funds over the course of a year for the group's charitable endeavors. Often, the group will show up at the arena they are visiting in nondescript apparel or in the colors of the home team, only to peel it off in favor of their traditional orange garb just before tip-off. The Orange Crush, which has shown up to games at places like Minnesota and Penn State over the years, has made two previous trips to Iowa. The group attended Iowa-Illinois games at Carver-Hawkeye Arena in 2010 and in 2015, but that won't happen this weekend. Leaders said that the late notification by Iowa will come at a cost, precluding the group from being able to opt to attend an Illinois game at another venue later this season. Because the University of Iowa waited to make this decision until today, February 1st, it is now too close to schedule a date of the trip to cancel the charter buses that had been arranged and receive a full refund, the group said in its statement, saying the organization will lose nearly $6,000 from its $30,000 budget. Any organization cannot realistically withstand losing one-fifth of its yearly budget, and we are no different. This means that financially, we cannot afford to pivot to another destination, even if there were sufficiently available tickets. It went to say that the Orange Crush road trip will be delayed until the 2023-2024 season, assuming that the chosen destination is on a campus with a less fearful athletic department than one representing the University of Iowa. That's it for the sports section, so let's move on to lifestyle. Groundhog predicts six more weeks. I'm going to restart that. Groundhog predicts six more weeks of winter. 
A furry critter in western Pennsylvania town has predicted six more weeks of winter during an annual Groundhog Day celebration. People gathered Thursday at Gobbler's Knob as members of Punxsutawney Phil's inner circle summoned the groundhog from his tree stump at dawn to learn if he has seen his shadow, and they say he did. According to folklore, it is as if if he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. If he doesn't, spring comes early. The Inner Circle is a group of local dignitaries who are responsible for planning the events, as well as feeding and caring for Phil himself. The annual event in Punxsutawney, about 65 miles northeast of Pittsburgh, originated from a German legend about a furry rodent. The gathering annually attracts thousands. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration compared Punxsutawney Phil's forecast to the national weather for the last 10 years and found, on average, Phil has gotten it right 40% of the time. This year, Phil's prediction came during a week when a mess of ice, sleet, and snow has lingered across much of, southern, of the southern U.S. According to records dating back to 1887, Phil has predicted winter weather more than 100 times. Ten years were lost because no records were kept, organizers said. The 2021 and 2022 forecasts also called for six more weeks of winter. While Punxsutawney Phil may be the most famous groundhog seer, he's certainly not the only one. New York City's Staten Island Chuck made his prediction for an early spring during event Thursday at the Staten Island Zoo. Phil and Chuck are among a broad selection of rodents that purportedly predict weather. On to our next story. Study. Replacing coal plants with renewables is cheaper than running them. From Bloomberg News. Replacing coal power plants across the United States with renewable energy products would reduce carbon emissions and require less water. And it would save money. Nearly all existing U.S. coal plants require more cash to operate than the cost of replacing them with new wind or solar projects, according to a report from the San Francisco-based climate think tank Energy Innovation. The finding is in the line with past research by Bloomberg NEF that, the, that determined that building new solar and wind farms is cheaper than operating existing coal or gas power plants in much of the world. Critical to the cost advantage of renewable energy in the U.S. is President Joe Biden's climate legislation, which provides billions of dollars in incremental in, in Okay, I'm going to pause and restart that. Critical to the cost advantage of renewable energy in the U.S. is President Joe Biden's climate legislation, legislated, legislation, which provides billions of dollars in incentives for clean energy infrastructure. The Inflation Reduction Act has made this local replacement and reinvestment scenario so economic and so much cheaper than coal, said Michelle Solomon, a policy analyst at, the Energy, Inno at Energy Innovation and the lead author of the report. It really creates a big opportunity to diversify the economics in coal communities. The law includes a 10% tax credit for so-called energy communities, including areas with retired coal plants, to transition to clean energy infrastructure. The report authors calculated the costs of operating each of the 210 coal plants in the U.S., taking into account fuel operations as well as future maintenance expenditures. They then compared the numbers to costs associated with insta installing and operating new wind and solar projects nearby. In all but one case, 
the renewable project required less cash. Energy Innovation has tracked the costs of new renewable projects in three coal cost crossover reports since 2019. The first report found that running 62% of existing coal capacity in the U.S. cost more than producing the same amount of energy from renewable resources. That increased to 72% in the 2021 edition. Now, incentives from the Inflation Reduction Act mean that the share of coal power that's more expensive has risen to 99%. The White House's push to move the U.S. away from fossil fuels has received criticism from industry groups as well as some members of Congress, like Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who have argued that the plans will strip jobs from communities that need them. But even with renewables costing less overall, replacing the county country's coal plants will require billions in investment, which the study authors say would create an economic opportunity. Mike O'Boyle, an author of the report and a director of energy innovation, says he hopes the new research will encourage public utilities commissions to invest in renewable energy. Those regulators are some of the most important policymakers and actors of the energy transition, said O'Boyle. Now they've got tools and a proactive role. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Annika Hurd from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.